Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. As you can see tonight, we're going to be carrying on our series on Jonah. Uh, We've been going over Jonah, the book of Jonah, all this month so far. Um, I kicked off the month talking about Jonah as a parable. And we looked at, if we consider Jonah to be a parable, what messages, what learning can we pull out of it, opposed to if we see it as a historical document or a prophetic book? And being a parable allows us to go deeper and have a more intrinsic value to us personally, seeing it through that light. Uh, Last week, Bruce Skinner from YWAM came and shared a missional perspective on Jonah. And if you missed that one, he gave a really interesting uh, insight to... He compared the salvation of Nineveh to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and had some really interesting things to say and some interesting insights into that as well. So if you missed either of those messages, then they're on the podcast. I encourage you to have a listen there. Um, Yeah, they're pretty interesting. So as you can see, tonight we're going to be talking about the sign of Jonah. As uh, Jesus said in the gospel when challenged by the Pharisees, he said, the only sign I'll give you is the sign of Jonah. And so... There's a lot in that simple phrase, and so we're going to be unpacking a bit of that tonight, and we're going to be looking at the parallels between Jesus and Jonah, and also diving a bit into ancient Jewish or Hebrew mysticism to understand what Jonah was talking about, because in the book of Jonah, it actually talks a lot about ancient Jewish mysticism as well. So if we can understand what Jonah was talking about, we might have a better understanding what Jesus was talking about, and that might give us a bit of a... Uh, wider perspective on some of that as well. And so we're going to start tonight with, uh, with Jesus. It's always a good place to start. And so I'm reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, 38 to 41. And it says this, One day some teachers of the religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah." But now, someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. And I just love the bluntness of Jesus here. You know, we have the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the, you know, most respected, well-educated, most learned, wise people of Jewish society, and Jesus is just telling them straight to their face they are evil and they are adulterous, and they will be condemned by the Ninevites, the people that the Jews wanted to condemn. And so he's not pulling any punches here, and we just get classic Jesus giving it straight to the Pharisees, which is brilliant. And so Jesus, in this passage, calls himself the, uh, the greater Jonah, the better Jonah. He's like Jonah 2.0, bigger, better, stronger, faster. You know, he slices, he dices, he's dishwasher safe. But Jonah, Jonah's a Christ figure, and if we go through the Old Testament, we can find lots of references to Christ figures, and Christ figures are those people that have parallels with their lives and that of Jesus. And so there's plenty of them, like Noah and Moses and Abraham and David, and there's plenty more. Now, the obvious comparison 
is the death and resurrection between Jesus and Jonah. But there's also a few other parallels as well, which, which is interesting. Uh, so, for example, um, both Jesus and Jonah at some point get on a boat that's hit by a heavy storm. The sailors freak out and they go looking for Jesus or Jonah and they find them both sleeping in the boat amidst the storm. They wake them up in a panic and say, get up, save us, pray, don't you care that we're going to die? And both Jesus and Jonah know exactly what to do. They both exactly know how to calm the storm. Jonah says, throw me overboard and the storm will stop. Jesus says, being the greater Jonah, he says to the storm, be calm, be still, and it was. And in both cases, the sailors were absolutely terrified at the display of awesome power. And then, of course, we have Jonah then uh, spent three days in the belly of the fish, was redeemed, and went and saved Nineveh. Jesus spent three days in the belly of the earth before being redeemed and going to save the world. And so understanding the parallels that we see between Jesus and Jonah is, I think, the first part of understanding this sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about. And so now we just need to quickly talk about signs because that's what this is all about, the sign of Jonah. What is a sign? And so we ask for signs. We like signs. How good is it when we get a sign from God? It's, it makes life so much easier. We know what direction we need to go. We know what to do in any certain situation. We have confidence when we have a sign pointing us the right way. But if you're anything like me, you don't get the signs nearly as often as you like and that can be really frustrating there will be many times especially I think in my early mid-20s when I'll be calling out to God saying God just give me a sign let me know what to do in this situation just give me a sign let me know that you're there let me know that you're not just a figment of my imagination that I made up to make myself feel better if you just give me one solid sign I'll never doubt ever again for the rest of my life I've prayed that to go with all my heart and more often than not I was met with silence, and it's frustrating. And we want signs in our just general day-to-day life as well, don't we? We love to get recognition, because when we get recognition, it's a sign that we're doing good at our job, or at parenting, or at school, or whatever it might be that we're trying to do. And we love to give signs as well, don't we? We love to give signs to show other people how accomplished we are. We like to say smart and witty things in conversations because it makes us feel smart and intelligent and wise and learned. And so we love to give signs as well. And signs in themselves are a good thing. And I know this might sound a little bit (laughs) sarcastic, but there's nothing wrong with signs within themselves until we expect them to be something more than what they are. You see, signs are not the truth. They only point us to the truth. And that's a significant distinction that I think we need to make. Because when signs become more important than the destination or the goal, that's when we find ourselves in trouble. That's, if we start chasing signs, we'll never get enough. Because signs, by their very nature, are just temporary. They don't last forever. They are fleeting. And sure, they might make you feel good in the moment, but after the feeling wears off, you want to find another sign, and another sign, and another sign. And that's really, that, that's really how the world works that we find ourselves, the society we find ourselves in today. It's always asking us for signs. It's saying, show us a sign, show us how successful you are, or show us how influential you are, how powerful you are, how beautiful you are. The world is always asking us to give us more and more signs. 
Did you get a raise and promotion? Then great, that's a sign that you're successful at your job, that you're doing a good job. But again, signs are not the truth. And I'm sure you know people that are well-deserving of a raise or a promotion that never got it. And I'm sure you also know some people who are definitely not deserving of a raise and promotion, and they're the ones that move up. Again, signs are not the truth, but we can hold on to them and get tricked and deceived thinking that they're the truth. I remember when I was working in Sydney maybe uh, seven or eight years ago now, very different to what I'm doing now, and this was in the corporate market. And looking at that time in my life in hindsight, I could just see how much it was all about science, how much it was all about that perpetual wheel that you're just going around again and again and again, constantly having to prove yourself. And even though I was in an office surrounded you know, by colleagues, they're really you know, seen as competition. You want to prove that you're doing better than everyone else in the office. And I remember there was one day when I just finished a project and the boss came up to me in the middle of the office and patted me on the back and in front of everyone in the entire office said, congratulations, Oren, well done, stellar job. You did a great job with that project. And I felt great. And everyone looked at me with admiration. And in the lunchroom, people were congratulating me and saying, what a great job I did. And I felt amazing for a few days. And then, you know, the feeling wears off. And then probably maybe a month or so later, I finished another project. And in fact, I reckon I did this project better than I did the previous project. I had better results from the, the second project. But this time, the boss didn't say anything. There was no congratulations. There was no you know, big you know, song and dance in front of everyone. There was no high fives in the lunchroom or anything like that. It was, it was just quiet. And I was wondering, did I do something wrong? What, what happened? And then I, I remember having this feeling of emptiness. I wanted that sign. I wanted that recognition. And I was thinking, what could I do differently next time to make sure I get that recognition? How could I you know, skew the figures or do a bit of shameless self-promotion. What would it take to get that same recognition? And so, the desire for me to get that recognition for those signs was changing the goal, changing the outcome that I was trying to do. Signs are great, but if they take the place of the destination of the goal, we find ourselves in trouble. And it's that slippery slope. It's that insatiable appetite of wanting signs again and again and again. And so I think this might be some of what Jesus is getting at when he refuses to give the Pharisees another sign. You see, if you read back in the Gospels, if you read back the chapters prior to this encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus had, uh, he had helped a paralyzed man to walk, he had cast a demon out of somebody, he had uh, healed a leper... Uh, and depending on which gospel you read, he had just fed the 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish and also resurrected Lazarus from the dead. But despite all of these signs that Jesus was giving, it was still not enough for the Pharisees. They still won their own sign. And, he, and it says right there in Scripture, show us your authority. Give us a sign to prove who you are. And I think this is a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. I think a revelation appeared before Jesus here. Because often we can think that Jesus had all of his God-level wisdom and knowledge right at the beginning of his ministry. And he's known it all the way through. But the more I've read the Bible, the more I've read the Gospels and thought and, and pondered on the works of Jesus, the more I see there's been a growth in Jesus' ministry. He's doing things differently at the end than he's doing things at the start. So at the start of Jesus' ministry... 
The first miracle he does, it's turning water into wine, which is great, it's a great miracle, but it's not healing anyone, it's not saving anyone's life, it's, it's not really, doesn't really have a huge message other than proving he is who he is. But then you look at Jesus at the end of his ministry, when he's in chains before Pilate, before Herod, and all these false accusations are coming to Jesus, and these false witnesses are coming forward and telling lies about Jesus, and he's asked, is this who you are, is this what you did? And you can just see Jesus, he's just over it by that time. He's like, I'm not giving out signs anymore. I don't need to prove who I am. And he just shrugs his shoulders and says, if you say that's who I am, that's who I am. Fine. He doesn't care. It's not important to him. And I think this encounter with the Pharisees is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. After this encounter, that's where you start to see Jesus talk more about that whole upside-down kingdom thing. It's the, the first, if you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to save your life, first you must lose it. Don't sit at the front of the banquet table when you go to a feast, sit at the end of the banquet table. So it's all this stuff about not giving signs, stepping off that roundabout that keeps expecting signs more and more and more. Back when I was, um, yeah, again, working in Sydney, there was a saying that got thrown around the office a little bit about um, someone is impressive. It's impressive to see someone go to work in an expensive suit until you realise they work for somebody who wears jeans. And that, and that's not to glorify CEOs or millionaires or anything like that. It's about the concept. If something is true, you don't need to prove it. It just is. You don't need to go around telling. If you're the boss, you don't need to go around telling everyone you're the boss. If you do, you're probably not the boss. Another example. If you see, have you ever spoken to like a little kid, like three or four years old? And they come up to you and go, guess what? And you go, what? And you go, I'm a big boy because I wear the big boy pants. And you go, yeah, you are a big boy. Of course you are. And as you leave the conversation, you think, oh, that kid was cute. But you're not thinking they're a mature adult, are you? <laughs> Imagine if I came up to you and said, guess what? I'm a big boy. <laughs> I wear the big boy pants. You would look at me sideways. You'd think that I have a screw loose or something because I don't need to go around telling people I'm a big boy. I am a big boy. I'm 40 years old. I do wear big boy pants. I don't need to prove it. And so if something is true, something is really true, it doesn't need to be proved. And I think that's what Jesus was getting at. We don't need to be constantly giving the signs about these truths. Jesus knew who he was. He was confident in himself and in his mission. He didn't have to keep proving to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who he is. And I think when you look at it through that angle... Things that Jesus say, says, like uh, the truth will set you free, takes on a deeper meaning. And so if you put your stock in what's true, not the signs, what's true, if you put your faith into what's true, you are free from having to give all, that sign, all those signs. You're free from the endless roundabout, that per- perpetual pursuit of you know, proving yourself. And that doesn't mean Jesus didn't give any didn't do any more um, miracles or healings or anything like that. He did plenty of others after this encounter with the Pharisees, but I think his attitude changed. It wasn't so much about proving that he is divine, that he is God incarnate. It was about love and compassion for these people because I think Jesus realised that all signs, even his own signs, are just temporary. The 5,000 people he fed, they, they got hungry again. Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, guess what? He died again at some point. Signs are temporary, but the truth is forever. And so that's Jesus' point, pointing to the sign of Jonah. What 
is true, the kingdom of God. So let's have a close look at Jonah's story now. And so we can pull a bit more out of this to better understand the sign of Jonah Jesus was pointing to. And this is particularly around his descent and ascent because there is a story arc to Jonah's uh, adventures. And I'm going to read uh, uh, Jonah's book, but again, this is just an abridged version. I'm not going to read the whole book, even though it's four chapters long, it's just too much to read out in a sermon. And so it sounds something like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city. Cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa when he found a ship bound for that port. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The sailors prayed to their gods to calm the storm. But God, sorry, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so we will not perish. The sailors then cast lots. And when they fell to Jonah, they knew he was the cause of the storm. They took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah prayed from inside the fish, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And so Jonah's story arc, like I said, it's, it's a descent and then ascent. And so actually it starts with an upwards movement. God comes to Jonah, calls Jonah and says, arise and go to Nineveh. And so that's an upwards movement. But from then Jonah runs away, and that's when he starts going down, down, down. And so Jonah it says he goes down to Joppa. When he gets on the boat, he goes down below the deck. He lays down. He goes into a deep sleep. He's thrown overboard and goes down into the depths of the sea. He goes down to the bottoms of the ocean, down to the roots of the mountain. He's barred deep in the pit, barred out of creation. He goes down into the belly of the fish. And it's at that lowest, lowest, lowest point that we get Jonah's prayer. And this is chapter 2, and it says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From, the deep, from deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me, seaweed wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me out, sorry, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I, make, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And then as we know, after that, he goes to Nineveh, proclaims God's word. They repent. Jonah gets upset. <laughs> okay, so to help us understand what Jonah's talking about here, I have, if you go to the next slide, a picture of uh, ancient Near Eastern cosmology. And so this is how the ancient Hebrews and probably other cultures as well understood 
the universe to look like. And we can actually get a lot of this in Genesis 1 and the creation story. And so Genesis 1, as you know, starts with the earth was void and without form. Darkness covered the deep. And you can see the great deep. That's the waters below. And that was everything. It was just chaos. Waters represented chaos to the Jewish people. But it says, and the spirit of God hovered over the waters. Then God created light and separated the light from the darkness. And you can see the light, the sun on one side, you can see the moon and the stars on the other side there. And then it said, God made the firmament that separated the waters from the deep with the waters above. And so the firmament is that, it's like that membrane, that semicircle there. And so you have the waters above and you have the waters below. And earth is in this safe little pocket of air. It's like this bubble, it's safe in the hands of God. And that's where he put us to live. And then from uh, the deep, God brought up dry land for man to live on. And you can see the earth there, flat earth, flat earth society. That's, I think, where they get a lot of their ideas from. Um, and then below the earth, you can see in the, in, in the ground, we have Sheol, the abyss, the roots of the mountains that Jonah speaks of. When he, so when Jonah says he sunk down to the roots of the mountains, to the pillars of the earth, you can see those at the bottom under the ground there. So this is what Jonah's talking about when he says he sunk down into the ocean and into the place of the dead. And so it can be said that Jonah, by telling the sailors to throw him overboard, committed suicide and sank down to the place of the dead. But as we know from Psalms like 139, even in the place of the dead, God is still there with us. And now we have the fish. We need to talk about the fish because there's significance here in what the fish represents. And often we can get this wrong. And so if you're anything like me, when you heard the story of Jonah in Sunday school, you would have understood that when the storm hits the boat and the sailors throw Jonah overboard, he's probably doing doggy paddle for about a minute before the fish comes up, gobbles him up, and then goes and swims down to the bottom of the ocean. And that's where Jonah is for three days and three nights. But if you read the book of Jonah carefully, you find that's not quite how it happens. You see, all of chapter 2 that I just read out to you, all of that is in past tense. This is all happens before Jonah actually is in the fish. And so things like it says, all your, all your waves and breakers swept over me. This is the ocean Jonah's describing, not the inside of a fish. The deep surrounded me. Again, we, got the, oh, we had the deep up on the screen there. The seaweed wrapped around my head, the seaweed at the bottom of the ocean. So all of this is happening before Jonah is actually inside the fish. You see, the fish didn't take Jonah down to Sheol, the place of the dead. Jonah fell into the ocean where he drowned. He sunk down to the bottom of the ocean, shut out from creation itself. And God sent the fish to actually rescue Jonah, not to condemn him. The fish was the means of Jonah's ascent. So in the place of the dead, God reached out, grabbed Jonah, sent the fish to actually save him. And so the fish is not a, v a vessel of destruction or condemnation. It was actually a vessel of salvation. And so we get it backwards so often, don't we? And so the fish is, we often imagine the fish to be just another form of punishment. Jonah gets thrown overboard in the middle of the storm into the ocean and starts drowning. And then God, just to add insult injury, gets him eaten by a giant fish. That's not what happened. The fish wasn't there to punish Jonah, the fish was there to reclaim Jonah. And we get a further insight to this as well when we understand the Jewish mysticism. The, the term three days and three nights, 
the, a Jewish person listening to the story of Jonah wouldn't have had uh, thought it to be a literal three days and three nights. Three days and three nights is it's like shorthand. It's analogy. It's understood to be the time it takes to pass from the realm of the living to the realm of the dead or vice versa again. And so it's kind of like our analogy of the pearly gates. When we go to heaven, if we'd actually literally pass through pearly gates, I'd, I'd be surprised. <laughs> but if I was to say, my father's gone and passed through the pearly gates, you would understand that my father has passed away and is now in heaven. Same thing here with the Jews hearing three days and three nights. It's in lots of other Jewish literature and literature from other uh, cultures as well. And so it's widely understood three days, three nights from one realm to the other realm. And so, just to recap, Jonah in chronological order. Jonah's thrown overboard, where he perishes and sinks to the bottom of the ocean, enters Sheol, barred out from creation. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, that's Jonah's resurrection. He says, but you, my Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. So all of chapter 2 happens at the end of chapter 1, if you look at it chronologically. And so from... Verse 15, where Jonah's thrown into the ocean, to verse 17, where he's actually swallowed by the fish. Between those verses, that's when we actually get chapter 2. It's just, it's out of order, so we miss it. And then Jonah being vomited on the dry land. It sounds disgusting, and it probably is. (laughs) But when you understand, again, from the ancient Hebrew mysticism, that dry land represents order amongst all the chaos of the oceans the fish was vomiting Jonah back into the hands of God back into safety back into life and so I find this fascinating to think that something that we see as a vessel of destruction or condemnation is actually a vessel of salvation and it makes me think about the different times that's been true in my life as well I'm sure there's lots of people here that can also relate as well and so uh, losing a job and I know a lot of us lost jobs over COVID and losing a job is terrifying it's like how am I going to make ends meet how am I going to pay my rent or my mortgage how am I going to put food on the table but then I know for a lot of us as well that we found then in that void of unemployment found maybe another job, maybe one that feels more life-giving, one that's more attuned to our passions and our skills and one with a better work-life balance and there can be life there as well. Deconstruction of faith. I know a lot of people have also gone through deconstruction as well. And deconstructing of faith is terrifying. It feels like the ground beneath you is pulled away and you just fall for eternity into the abyss, into darkness. Everything you held to be so true and right, everything you're so certain about has been taken away and you've got nothing left to hold on to. But then in the abyss, finding God there and finding a bigger God, a more loving God, a more passionate God than you ever knew before, life can be found in that abyss as well. Or maybe you've separated or lost someone that you've loved. And you feel like, how am I ever going to get through life without this person by my side? I don't know how to do it. But then finding your feet, finding your own strength, there can be life there as well. Now, it doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes death and destruction is just death and destruction. But we do have hope in God that there is life in death and destruction as well. And and that's really the whole crux of the Christian story, isn't it? That's really what being a Christian is about. 
And that's a sign Jesus was pointing to. What we did to Christ on the cross, if anything, that should have separated God from man. That should have been the final wedge, the final straw for God to say, that's it, they've gone too far now. They've, they've killed my son, no more. I've done, I'm done with this human race thing. But no, that horrific thing we did to Christ on the cross actually became our salvation. It redeemed us, it healed the disease that sin was inside of us and made us whole again in Christ. The worst thing mankind has ever done to God was turned into the best thing God ever did for mankind. And so just quickly, let's just go back to the Pharisees and Jesus refusing to give them a sign. We might look at it and think that, yeah, Jesus is just fed up. He's just over asking for, these, uh, asking for all these signs. But, and you kind of get it, don't you? Because Jesus has been performing all these signs and just another one for these Pharisees that probably weren't going, wasn't going to believe him anyway. It was just another one. And he says, fine, I'll just give you one last sign. And it will be the sign of Jonah. It's not going to be the sign that you want. I'm just going to die. It's almost going to look like Jesus is saying, I'm just going to lose. I'm just going to lose and die. But as we know, dying also means the death of having to give all those signs as well. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? It's not just about Jesus being fed up because the sign of Jonah isn't a small sign. It's a big sign. It's a big deal. It's the deal. It's the whole reason and mission Jesus came to earth. And so maybe we can also see Jesus saying, I will give you one last miracle and it'll be the greatest miracle I'll ever do. I will show you resurrection and redemption. Just as Jonah was resurrected and redeemed Nineveh, I'll be resurrected and redeemed the world. And the Pharisees couldn't understand it. They, they wouldn't understand it. There's no way they could get their heads around all of that. Jesus didn't give them the sign they wanted, but he did deliver on his promise and his purpose. And so, just to finish up, I think we can take the same for us today as well. When we don't get the signs that we desperately, desperately ask God for, remember the sign of Jonah. The sign to end all signs. The death to end all death. And while God might not give us the signs that we ask for, he will always, always deliver on his promises. And so again, don't put your faith in the signs. Put your faith in the truth. And God is the source of all that truth. And that's the sign of Jonah. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>